0: Listening to this message from the Altar Fellowship. Thank you so much, y'all. Can be seated. Love you. Uh, it's good to see you. It's good to see y'all. Um, how are we doing this morning? Good. Um, I uh, I want you to know that that uh, God is so faithful. He's so kind and um, when things are going wonderful, he's, he's near to you. and when things are going less than wonderful, he's near to you. you know And uh, what a good God we have uh, to, uh, to, to sit with us in suffering or disappointment or uncertainty, to pursue us in our unbelief, even in our rebellion. He's so kind. Um uh you know i mentioned a, a couple times that I have uh that I'm I'm sort of going back to uh finish my undergraduate degree and um, my expectation is that by the end of this year I should have that and then um my hope or dream is to possibly lord willing to pursue a master's degree after that but I um Part of the undergraduate studies I've been been doing have meant that over the last three months I've had to read the whole Old Testament and now about the first half of the New Testament. And so it's been a studious several months for me. And uh, most of my off days are spent in the office in my basement, you know, cranking out homework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) yes, homework. You're that guy, huh? Uh, (laughs) Yeah. You're supposed to feel pity for me, not envy, you know, like, um, <laughs> and to be honest, it's, it's been, it's been wonderful. It's been awesome for me. I'm so grateful, uh, to, uh, to have the opportunity to be stretched, to revisit some texts that are familiar. And, uh, and then I think, um, to discover some things that were not familiar to me. And, uh, turns out there's a lot. I was you know, born and raised in the church. And I went to a Christian elementary and middle school. And then I went to two different Catholic colleges and, uh, I've taken a whole bunch of theology classes and have studied the Bible for countless thousands of hours in my life. And turns out there's still a whole lot that I don't know. And, uh, and it's been so fun for me over these last few months to, to dive in and to discover some Some new things. And, you know, I said to someone recently, I don't think I've ever loved the Bible more than I do right now. And, you know, this month I felt like uh, this would be a perfect opportunity where we have, we're through the holidays. Once we've gotten through uh, New Year's Eve, I I felt like we have this one month to sort of prepare ourselves for two services. So I really wanted to, to go back to the basics this month. Um, and to really talk about some of the foundational things that we believe that we ought to believe, some of the foundational things that we do or we ought to do, and to um, reinforce the foundations of our faith uh, to, I think, prepare us for the weight of the glory that that we know the Father wants to pour out on on this house and on this movement. So um, today, you should know that the... Central point of my message is this. You should read the Bible. It's a profound revelation. <laughs> uh, a dynamic, powerful, prophetic word. Specifically to you. You should read the Bible. It's good for you. Same reason you should eat broccoli. It's good for you. <laughs> and... Um, and so I, I I understand we are in an age of, you know, YouTube where YouTube videos were not convenient enough, so we introduced YouTube shorts. Like, imagine for just a minute the attention span of a generation of people who goes, "A five-minute YouTube video!" <laughs> Give me that 20-second short. like. I need the condensed version. We live in a generation of people who form unshakable opinions about important topics based on a headline they read. They didn't even read the the whole article, let alone any of the sources the article referenced. None of that is happening. They just, they read the headline and they decided that's what I believe. Um, We live in a generation where friends of mine that are in... Uh, Leadership, executive or administrative leadership at Christian universities are saying to me privately, we have never in the history of America seen such low biblical literacy in the, the, the lives of incoming freshmen. Kids who are coming to Bible college, kids who have grown up in the church are coming into Bible college and they don't know anything about what we as Christians believe is God's holy word. And so the first year at Bible college is just like Sunday school level Christianity. It's an introduction to Christianity for the first time to a group of kids, most of whom grew up in church. And so what are we going to do about it? I don't get to pastor every church in America, but I do get to pastor this one. And so privately to my staff and even publicly a time or two here from this pulpit, I have said, we will be a people who are biblically literate. We will be a people who love God's word, who lean into God's word, who emphasize God's word. And we will raise up a generation who know God's word. And so we're doing, like, I don't know if any of y'all went to school or, or, or Sunday school when you were young and you did sword drills. Y'all remember those? That was the best. You'd get a Jolly Rancher if you you won. So I was like, dude, I better crush this sword drill. I I went and, like I begged my mom for one of those Bibles with the little uh, tabs that tell you, because I'm trying to win the sword drills. I got to get that Jolly Rancher, right? So we're doing sword drills with the kids. Like I'm telling you, we are going to be, I understand that in the charismatic wing of Christianity, um, the Bible sometimes is like an afterthought. Sometimes it feels like, you know, well, w- whatever you feel is right, whatever you imagine or imply that God told you, that's, that's fine. You know, you just shrug your shoulders and say, well, God's doing a new thing. And so I can think whatever I want. I can believe whatever I want. I can divorce or date or sleep with whoever I want. I can, um, I can spend my time or my money however I want to because it feels right to me. I have had conversations with Christians who are about to do something profoundly stupid and who justify it by saying, Jesus is my friend. He goes with me where I go. I know that I'm going to be okay. It's like, good luck, you know? Okay. And, uh, and so it's really, really, really important that we, if we are, have any aspiration to be kingdom people, that we become people who are biblically literate, who are articulate and proficient in the dividing and applying, the, the um, cataloging and the manifesting of what God's Word teaches. And so the Bible is, that's the name of the sermon, at least it's what I wrote at the top of my notes today. The Bible is, and really, I'm going to make to you three points. The Bible is trustworthy, the Bible is transformational, and the Bible is personal. It's trustworthy, transformational, and personal. Now, uh, I've got to tell you, some of the things I'm going to teach you today, I didn't know until this week. And I am, my faith is stirred. I, I'm reinforced uh, uh, in, in my passion, in, in my desire to know God and to know God's word. The Bible To break it down is an anthology. It's a collection of 66 books in total, 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament written by approximately 40 people over the course of more than 1,500 years. Starting from about 15 or 1600 BC until about 30 to 70 AD. These books were written by approximately 40 people over the course of approximately 1,500 years. Now, the, the first argument, and I think this is such an interesting and exciting one, the first argument for the, the, the statement that the Bible is trustworthy is, is this. We have more original manuscripts of the biblical text than any other text in history. And when I say it's not even close, I mean it's not even close. Here's, let me put it into context. Has anybody heard of Plato? Has anyone ever disputed the existence of Plato? Uh, No, I don't think so. But we have seven manuscripts of Plato's writings. Seven manuscripts of Plato's writings. How about Julius Caesar? You guys have heard of Julius Caesar? We have 10 manuscripts of Julius Caesar's writings, the accounts of his life. We have 49 manuscripts of the writings of Aristotle. I've never heard anybody say, well... Who knows if Aristotle really existed? Um, Of the New Testament, we have 5,600 original manuscripts. Additionally, listen to this, there are over 19,000 copies of those manuscripts in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic as well. And so the total supporting New Testament manuscript base is is more than 2,400 original manuscripts that support... This story that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was born in Bethlehem. He, he lived and performed miracles and preached messages. He died, was buried, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. He claimed to be God, and his followers believed that that claim was, was true. Now, I, I'm not making an argument, but I am saying that there is no argument about the historicity or the historical validity of the existence of this man called Jesus of Nazareth and the reputation that he garnered for himself. It's just not able to be argued with. Now you can argue that everyone was deceived. You could argue that everyone was mistaken, but you cannot argue that Jesus lived and that he was, uh, that the people around him believed that he was exactly who he said that he was. Historical evidence overwhelmingly supports that the old Testament writings were all completed within 70 years of the resurrection of Jesus Now this is especially interesting because if that's true, then that means that if there were any inaccuracies or inconsistencies with the story, that people would have known. Like someone would have read the story and said, yeah, my dad was there. That's not how it happened. Oh, I remember this story from when I was a kid. Yeah, that's not what really happened. It was different than that. Like they're writing this to people that saw these things happen. And so as these books were being written in the first century, they were Compelling because they were reliable. People who were actually there, who actually saw these events take place, were reading these original manuscripts and saying, yeah, that's how I remember it. Bearing witness to it themselves. So we have the original manuscripts that stand as the most compelling evidence for any ancient writing ever released. Now, second point that I would make for the trustworthiness of the scriptures is that the Bible itself is supernaturally precise and complex. And here's, here's what I mean when I say this. The Bible itself is supernaturally precise and complex. Uh, now, this is a point I maybe would not have thought to make a year or two ago. But reading through the scriptures, it's it's been profoundly interesting. Uh, uh, Captivating for me to see the consistency of the message that writer after writer after writer after writer writer preaches. It's like the entire Old Testament tells this story. God has set a standard. People fail to meet that standard. God rests. They suffer the consequences of their rebellion. God rescues them from those consequences when they cry out to him. And then he makes this promise. Someday I'll send a king that will establish a kingdom that will stand forever. And in that kingdom will be righteousness and peace and joy for all people. It's like prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Author after author after author. About 30 authors um, collaborated together to write the Old Testament. And these are people from different nations. People who wrote in and spoke different languages. These are people that lived in different parts of the world. This, this idea of the Bible's internal consistency is stunning when you take a look at it from the 30,000-foot view that redundantly, over and over and over again, everyone, generation after generation after generation after generation after more than 1,500 years, they were continually saying the same thing. Someday, a king will come from the line of David. He'll be a descendant of Abraham. When he comes, he'll be born in Bethlehem, he'll come into the city riding on a donkey, he won't win by, he won't bring victory by conquering he'll bring victory by actually allowing himself to be killed, he'll die for, to save his people, it's like all of this is written more than a thousand years before, Jesus, or around a thousand years before Jesus is born yet all of it is pointing forward to this anointed one, this Messiah, this king who would come from the line of David, who would save the world from their sins and who would bring right relationship or right standing or justification between God and man. And so this idea like this this book this book this book was written by 40 different people over 1500 years it was written in three different languages. The Bible's internal consistency is unparalleled. It's supernaturally precise. complex. Let me me show you an illustration. Maybe you've seen this. There's a popular image that's been going around the internet that I think is a pretty phenomenal illustration of this. So every one of the white bars at the bottom of that line represents a chapter in the Bible. And every one of the colored uh, bars that goes from one chapter to another represents a cross-reference where the Bible refers to itself. Some of them refer forward to things that would happen 500, 1,000, 2,000 years later. Some of them refer to things that happened in the past. But in the Bible, there are more than 63,000 cross-references. To be exact, 63,779 cross-references found in the Bible. That's what this picture is of. 63,779 references to itself. Keep in mind, this is not one very meticulous author. This is 40 authors over the span of more than 1,500 years writing in three different languages on three different continents. And to me, it seems like we only have three possible conclusions. Conclusion one is that this was a coincidence. That's hard to believe. Number two is that this was a conspiracy carried out by 40 different authors over the span of more than 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents. Again, very hard to believe. Or the third option is that God himself inspired the words of this book. And in infinite wisdom, he intricately wove together the fabric of this text to demonstrate and communicate his heart to mankind. So we really only have three options. Those three options are that it was a coincidence, it was a conspiracy, or this is legitimately the word of God. It's a coincidence, it's a conspiracy, or this is legitimately the word of God. So... The Bible itself, that's my second point, is where I'm trying to support this argument that the Bible is trustworthy. The Bible itself is supernaturally precise and complex. I have marveled at the complexity of Scripture. I have marveled at the uniform messaging of Scripture generation after generation after generation, book after book after book. I have marveled at the amazing precision with which this book zeroes in on the same message over and over and over and over and over again. It could not be a coincidence. It could not be a conspiracy. I think it takes less faith to believe that this book is actually the word of God than to think that somehow this happened on accident, or that somehow these authors conspired together, a thousand years separated from one another. Now, let me go to the third point: uh, the historical evidence and context surrounding the scriptures. Now. Understand, uh, the Bible is true, but the Bible is not an exhaustive anthology of truth, right? It's, un- understand what I'm saying. I can feel the, you know, the, I can feel people saying, wait a minute, like, here's what I mean, like, there's, there's nothing in the Bible about uh, gravity, right? But gravity is true. Okay, the, the laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics—they're observable, they're repeatable, they're catalogable. They're they're demonstrably true things. They're not in the Bible. So what I'm saying is, the Bible is true, but the Bible is not an exhaustive anthology of of truth. And so there's there's plenty of um, sort of extra biblical history, things that aren't written in the book that are true. And you would think that if this book was fictional, that that the history surrounding it would maybe be off at times. That it would be enhanced or elaborated or twisted at times. But the reality is that, that historical evidence has continually, generation after generation, only served to strengthen the assertions made in Scripture. The Roman historian and teacher Tacitus, in the early 2nd century, he wrote this. The early 2nd century, this is a Roman historian. He's not a... Uh, a Christian, he's not a Jew, he, he, he wrote this, he said, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. This is a Roman historian just recording things that happened. So he's explaining there's this little sect of people that call themselves Christians. They got that name from this man called Christus, Christ, or or what the Jews would call Messiah, the Messiah. And and he's saying that he suffered uh, the extreme penalty. I'm sure you can imagine what that might be. During the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Okay, if that's not enough for you, there is an empire referred to multiple times in the scriptures called the Hittites. And, uh, for 1800 years, um, historians believed that the Hittite empire was invented as maybe an allegory, um, or a metaphor that, that was sort of injected into the story of the, um, uh, the, the Israelite historic books in the old Testament. And that, uh, The Hittite Empire never actually existed because there's no record of them anywhere. But then, in 1834, French scholar Charles Texier discovered what scholars thought may have been a fictional empire referenced in scriptures. So there is no longer any question about whether the Hittites existed. In 1834, they found irrefutable proof. They found the remains of the Hittite Empire that had been forgotten by history but recorded in the scriptures. Uh, the same thing happened in 1868 with the city of Jericho. The, you know, the famous Battle of Jericho, where Joshua and the Israelites marched around this massive city wall once a day for seven days, and then seventh ta- uh, seven times on the seventh day, and they shouted and the, blew their trumpets, and the city walls came crumbling down, and God gave them this supernatural victory. Everyone thought, well, maybe that's. Analogous, Maybe that's a, a story that's just meant to illustrate, you know, God is powerful and he gives us victory over our enemies until 1868 when um, the, arche- uh, the archeologist Charles Warren found the remains of the city called Jericho. And then another historian at the end of the first century named Josephus, very famously, he wrote these words about Christ. Not, again, not a Christian, um, just a historian and a historical figure trying to sort of uh, draw back the, the lines of origin from some of the popular movements of his time at the end of the first century. He wrote this, at this time there was a wise man called Jesus. He's talking about, I don't know, right around 30 to 33 AD. He says, at this time there was a wise man called Jesus and his conduct was good and he was known to be Virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. So again... We have extra-biblical accounts confirming the biblical narrative. and So we see that the Bible is trustworthy. I hope this has been a compelling enough case. The Bible, it really is. It really is trustworthy. And not only is it trustworthy, it's also transformational. And this would be my second main point, that the Bible is its not only a text that you can trust for its historical accuracy, it also is able to transform the life of those who give it authority or influence for them. There's a a recent study published by the Center for Biblical Engagement um, polled more than 40,000 people from ages 8 all the way up to 80. And the study found that for those who read the Bible four or more times a week, that that feeling lonely drops 30%. That anger issues drop 32%. Bitterness in relationships drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. Sharing their faith jumps 200%. And making disciples of others jumps 230% for people who just read their Bible four or more times a week. Now, here's an interesting caveat to that. When someone reads their Bible once a week, or twice a week, or three times a week, the difference is negligible. Here's here's what I mean. Um, If you come into church and the pastor says, open in your Bibles to whatever passage, and you read that passage along... That doesn't count as four times a week. Like, even if I choose four different passages and you find all four of them, that doesn't count as as four times a week. Right? And here, this is so interesting to me because the, the graph, it's like it starts, you know, here, and then, you know, for those that read the Bible once a week, and then those that read the Bible twice a week, and those that read the Bible three times a week, those that read the Bible four times a week, it's like many, many times more impact when you get to that number four. Now I'm not trying to make some kind of prophetic argument about like the, you know, the the spiritual symbolism of the number four. But I'm telling you this, that for some reason, when people read their Bible four or more times a week, there's a substantial impact on their relational health, on their psychological health, on their social health, that everything in their life is substantially enhanced and blessed by just reading this book. Like if this was just a, it's not like. Like you couldn't you couldn't repeat those statistics with Harry Potter, you know what I mean? You couldn't you can't repeat those statistics with the Quran, you couldn't repeat that those statistics with the Tao Te Ching like there 's something about the Bible that is fundamentally transformative to the human psyche, and in, in fact, this is what 's so interesting to me is is that you, you have people making arguments against the authority of scripture and they 'll make these two arguments that are fundamentally contradictory they 'll say the bible is is unreliable because it was written by a bunch of random farmers and fishermen. okay, fair enough, but also no book has ever captured the human internal reality the the psyche of 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 humanity like the fundamental essence of what it means to be human that you know Nietzsche and Freud couldn't do it but fishermen and farmers could like 2000 years ago fishermen and farmers could somehow write the most compelling book ever written? It's like, I, listen, I can understand that maybe you're hesitant to believe the, the Bible because it was written by men, but it's like, if those men were, had such profound insight into the human soul, the reality of the interior world of a man, it's like, then maybe those men are the kind of men we should listen to. And so, for some reason, this book stands alone in its transformational power in the life of those who read it regularly. Now, at this point in history, we also have the additional benefit of more than 2,000 years of trial and error with this book. More than 2,000 years of beta testing these principles. More than 2,000 years of lives and families radically transformed By the power of God's word. Generation after generation after generation after generation from the time of Christ until now. Have argued over whether we could trust this book. They have read this book. They've devoured this book. They've studied this book. And generation after generation after generation have stood as living, breathing witnesses, testimonies, and examples of the fact that this book has the power to transform lives. You know, just the other night, I was um, having dinner with, we were having dinner with some friends, and one of my friends, an amazing man of God named Kelly O'Gero. He's an awesome, wonderful man of God. He's, uh, his son is is good friends with my boys. We were talking to him, and and, uh, his story is that he grew up in Catholicism. Uh, angry at God, hated himself and looking for an excuse to deny even the existence of God and go even further into his sin and his self-destructive lifestyle. He just got a Bible and he just started reading it. And the way he shared the testimony is he said that by the time I got to Psalm 51, I was flat on my face, weeping and crying out to God saying, can you please forgive me? He said, nobody preached to me. I didn't read some book about how to become a Christian, you know, Christianity for Dummies. He said, I just grabbed the Bible and I just read this book and this book alone washed this this rebellious thing out of me. This book alone forced confusion out of me. This book alone took every bit of deception about my identity or God's existence and obliterated it and brought me to the, the feet of God, the merciful and the loving And he's not alone. Men in every generation, women in every generation have found hope, freedom, insight, perspective, and purpose from this book. And so we see that God's word is not only trustworthy, it's also transformational as well. But it's not merely trustworthy or transformational. And this is where I really wanted to get us this morning. It's also personal and I think um, for me this is uh, a critical piece of the puzzle for us to understand that God's word is not it's not merely true and it's not merely transformational I I think this is the um, the mistake that a lot of people in my generation make we spend a lot of time arguing over whether or not the Bible is historically accurate. We spend a lot of time arguing over whether or not the authors of Scripture are, are trustworthy sources. We spend a lot of time contemplating, considering, or debating um, you know, whether or not the Bible actually has the power to change anybody's life. But the truth is, the Bible's not, it's not a book of, of history. Or I should say it's not only a, a book of history. It's not mainly a book of history. It's not mainly a book of psychology or or personal development this book is it's not just trustworthy it's not just transformational it's personal this is god's word to you this is god's word to you this is it's a it's a personal expression of god's desire to be known by you it is It it, itself, the, the mere existence of the Bible is itself evidence that God wants you to know him. He wants you to know how he thinks. He wants you to know how he speaks. He wants you to know what he loves and what he hates and what he expects for your life. He wants you to know what he promises to do in you and through you and for you. He wants you to know him. He's not hiding. He sent us this text And yet, so many of us never make time to read it. And so the, the question, and this is a, a mistake that I see a lot of people make, is, is that they, we create this false dichotomy where we feel like we have to um, sort of set up camp in, in, uh, or set up shop in one of these two camps. Either you believe that the Bible is literal or you believe that the Bible is metaphorical. The truth is, it's really complicated that, you know, verse by verse, and chapter by chapter can be uh, different. In, in fact, me and Pastor Ian were talking the other day about a, a comment that the Apostle Paul made that was sarcastic. So it's like some, some things could be categorized not as literal or metaphorical, but sarcastic. All right, well, how are we supposed to take that, right? But I should say this, the Bible's not primarily literal or metaphorical or sarcastic. The Bible's primarily personal. And so the question that we need to be asking is not, did this happen or, uh, or, uh, or did this not happen? The question we should be asking is, why would God put this in the Bible for me? What does God want to say to me today as I'm reading his word? How can I see God more clearly as I bury my, my face and my heart in this book, well, that's the question that will change everything. If we begin to read the Bible and say, God, what do you want to say to me today? That will change everything. I, I want to just read a, a couple verses and, and we're going to keep it short today. Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 13 through 17. This is to give you some context here because context is critical give you some context here. This is a letter written by the apostle Paul to Timothy. Timothy um, was around 17 years old when he became the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus. So the, the Ephesian church, Timothy's the senior pastor, senior leader of this church, but he's a teenage boy. And so Paul is writing some encouragement, some edification and some advice for this boy. So to give you context here to understand that this is like a, a dad talking to a son and the son is in over his head and he's saying, hey, here's how to make sure that you rise to the occasion and that you navigate this with integrity um, successfully. And so second Timothy chapter three, starting in verse 13, it says this, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I I want to just take a minute for you to really digest that. From childhood, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. He said, from childhood, from the time you were a kid, in another section, Paul mentions Timothy's mother and grandmother and their faithfulness to the Lord. And so Paul knows that Timothy was raised in a family that taught him the scriptures. And he says this, from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures. And then Paul says this of the scriptures, they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I want you to understand, like in the charismatic stream where we have lived, we have told people, well, you just got to feel the presence of God, right? And I have no problem. Listen, if y'all have ever, if y'all have been to the Altar Fellowship for more than 20 minutes, you know, I don't have any problem with people feeling the presence of God. But the presence of God, it may provoke you to curiosity. But the Scriptures are what are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Like, understand that that a touch from God, a vision, a dream. You know, when you come into this church and there's just this feeling, it's like, what is this? You know, there's, it's like Charles Finney described it as liquid love. You know, this, it's like, there's something all around me that I just, I can't escape. I can feel this presence. It's like, I I know that God is in the room, like beautiful. I want that for all of you. A friend of mine once said that, that when, when preaching the gospel, we should give people an experience that needs to be explained, not an explanation that needs to be experienced. An experience that needs to be explained, not an explanation that needs to be experienced. And this is the mistake that a lot of people make is they think, well, here's some doctrine for you. Hopefully someday you'll see this work in your life. It's like, oh, no, no, we, I want to see you touched and transformed, but we have to understand that without the Holy scriptures, we will never find wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so I, my hope is that you'd come here and experience something so gloriously supernatural that you'd say there is a God and he's in that room. And then that you'd go home and you'd pick up this book and say, and I want to know him. And so let me continue. So, so Paul says, um, from childhood, you, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this list of of things. Profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Now, maybe it's because of my career path, but I feel like this is just wonderful advice. This is essentially Paul telling Timothy, when people are stupid, use the Bible. He's saying, they're going to be stupid. There's going to need to be some correction, some reproof at times. And, uh, and he said, if, if you bring to them your personal opinion, your personal feelings, it's not going to carry weight. But if you carry with you God's eternal word, it will carry both the authority to bring correction and the grace for them to be able to make the correction necessary. And all of this unto an end. The end is, in verse 16, it says, so that the man of God, sorry, verse 17, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word complete, it's like mature, fully mature, fully developed. Now, I, I won't make you raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us feel incomplete. How many of us are acutely aware of the fact that we have big holes in our life, big needs in our life, dreams or or desires, like some innate longing for the divine or the transcendent that we just have not been able to put our finger on, we haven't been able to figure out? I want you to know that scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's, It's useful for a lot of things, but most of all, so that the man of God may be complete, So that the holes in you can be filled in. So that the weak places can become strong. So that the rough edges can become smooth. So that the things in you that are offensive to the God that made you can be transformed into the likeness of Christ. And your life can be a glorious example of God's loving kindness to a world that desperately needs to see it. So the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every what? Come on, this is important. I think um, for people that are naturally academically inclined, people who love to study, Um, this this would sometimes include me. It's not it's not the studying that I don't like. It's that I have to do it. You know, like then I'm like I'm not doing it. Um, So the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped. Listen, let me tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say thoroughly equipped for every argument in a Facebook comment section. Thoroughly equipped for every debate over Thanksgiving dinner. Thoroughly equipped for every tough question your kids might ask you. Like, it doesn't say any of that. It it says, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Like, understand that God's goal is not to make us smart, it's to make us holy. Like, God's intention in, in giving us his word, it's not just to make us intellectually superior. Like it's, it's not about being better than people who don't know God's word. It's about being more equipped to lower ourselves, to wash the feet of, of those the world would call unclean, to love the unlovable, to forgive the unforgivable because that's what's been done for us and in us. And so as we grow in doctrine, if we are, if we are growing in arrogance, this, this doctrine is, is not helping us at all. This is the, the danger of, of like... Of this sort of uh, uh, culture of theological ascent that, that you see arising in some popular Christian denominations today. It's, it's like, I want to be smarter. I want to study more. I need to get my doctor of divinity. I, you know, I, I need to reach the pinnacle so that then I can be the one that's the authority on the subject. I can be the one that people listen to and learn from. It's like, no, no, no. The, the The point of scripture, according to the Apostle Paul, is to equip us for every good work. So what God's word should produce in us is humility, not arrogance. What his word should produce in us is the heart of a servant. Not the the mind of a professor. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, let me jump over to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter one, I think beautifully contextualizes. This is a long book, something like 750,000 words in the Bible. And, uh, it's, uh, it's long, right? And so you have the entire old Testament that is, it contains essentially the, uh, the books of the, the, the law, the history of Israel and, and all the prophetic writings. Um, of Israel's famous or influential prophets. And so you have this Old Testament. Um, and it's, it's in that context where people have the, the law of God, the history of Israel, and, and the prophetic writings that the author of Hebrews writes this. Shortly after Christ came, claimed to be the Messiah, died, was resurrected from the dead, and then ascended to God. The, the author of Hebrews writes this. He says, God, in, in, chapter, in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 1, he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So I want to make sure that we're not, like, I, I understand sometimes when I start reading the Bible, it can just turn into like one of those teachers from Peanuts, you know, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> so like sometimes I'll just read it a couple times and put emphasis on it so that you could really hear what I'm saying. This is what he says. God. Who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. So he's, he's saying th- that we all know that in history, God has used prophets like Isaiah, Elijah, Daniel to speak to the fathers of our faith. To our ancestors in the, 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 the Jewish heritage is what this, uh, this author is, is emphasizing. So he's saying... God spoke through these prophets. We all know these books. Many of us have these books memorized. We've taught these books. We've studied these books. We know them very, very, very well. He says, so God, at various times and various ways, he spoke in the past to the fathers by the prophets. Look what the next verse says. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son. So there's this, this shift that the author of Hebrews puts his finger on, he says that that in the past, God spoke to us through these books, the prophetic books. He spoke to us through Isaiah, Jeremiah. He spoke through us through Ezekiel and Elijah. But he says, but now God speaks to us, not through mere men, not through old books. God speaks to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Verse three says this, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Um, I want to leave you with this. I think we have established that the Bible is trustworthy, I think we've established that the Bible is transformative. But it would be a great tragedy if you didn't go home knowing deep down in, in the innermost parts of who you are that the Bible is personal, that God in times past spoke through prophets, revealed the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person in Jesus Christ. How many of you know? Can we go back to verse two? In These last days, God has spoken to us by his son. How many of you know that God speaks? God speaks. The creator, the sustainer of all things, the architect of existence the transcendent, glorious, majestic, matchless God speaks. And he speaks through this every day. I, I, I can't tell you how many people you know, call me and get meetings because they need a word from the Lord. It's like there's 750,000 of them right here. If you can't hear a word, read one. I can't, I can't, I've been, the last few days my wife will tell you I've been in tears on multiple occasions reading 2 Corinthians. It's like, this is for me, you know? And uh, and, and this is, it's like, you need to know that if the God of the universe gave us this, this text, this book, It reveals to us not only that he exists, but that he is invested in human life. It reveals to us that he's not just out there, but that he wants to be known. He wants to be pursued. He wants to be revealed because he's revealed himself in the person of Christ and in the pages of scripture. And so my hope for you is is that if, if it's not passion for God's word that motivates you to study the scriptures, if it's not conviction to, to give honor and attention to the God that inspired these words, maybe it would just be curiosity that drives you to say, well, let me give some time to God's word this week and next and just see what happens. Because generation after generation after generation after generation for 2,000 years have found that the, the words in these pages have the power to transform even the hardest hearts. And so my encouragement to you is this. If we are going to be the community, the family the movement that God has called us to be. It's not enough to just feel the, the presence when we're in the room together. It's not enough to just do what feels right to us. That's a recurring theme in the book of Judges. It's like God delivers the Israelites and then every man did what was right in his own sight. It's like... It's a, dangerous, it's a dangerous description. Every time the Israelites did what was right in their own sight, it ended very, very poorly for them. Tragically, I think that you could pretty accurately describe the American church just like the, the Israelites in the days when the judges ruled. It's, every man does what's right in their own sight. But God has given us his word, he's not hiding. His expectations or his promises. He's not hiding his heart or his character from us. My hope is that um, that, that through passion or conviction or curiosity that we would find ourselves with our hearts open, giving time and attention to this book, knowing that through it, the God of the universe wants to reveal his heart and his hope for you and those around you. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word that does give us life, guidance, direction, that does make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your word that is trustworthy, transformational and personal. God, we want to know you and we thank you that you've made yourself knowable through the pages of scripture. God, we ask that your spirit would illuminate uh, the Word that's contained on those pages, and that it would apply it to our lives, God bring transformation and revelation, bring insight to every person that, that would give time out of their week or their day to to your word. I pray God that we would be a people that that really know you, that really seek you, and Lord, would you continue to be faithful to allow yourself to be found as we do so Lord. I pray that you bless the marriages in this house, bless the finances in this house, bless the, um, the the careers in this house, Lord. Let everything that we set our hands to prosper for your glory. Uh, we, we say, God, we want you to, um, to guide and direct our steps. Let your word be a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, can I, uh, I want to... Just challenge you this week um, to make space you 're not going to find space you 're not going to find time to read the bible uh, the The daily Bible verse on the bible app that doesn 't count. can we just it 's going to pop up in the morning and you 're going to swipe out of it like you do every morning like get an actual Bible and look at it with your actual eyes all right it 's going to be good for your soul i 'm telling you. Family, I love you. God bless you. Thank you so, so, so much for being here. Just a reminder, the new members class is right now over in the family room. We're gonna be there in just a few minutes talking about the vision, the history of the church, and the vision of the church moving forward. God bless you. Thank you guys so much for being here. We'll see you Wednesday night, 6.30. Thank you for tuning in to this service from the Altar Fellowship. We pray that you are impacted powerfully by this message. If you have been personally affected by our ministry and you would like to partner with the altar as we work to establish the kingdom of heaven, please visit our website at www.thealtar.org.